So I dabbled in illness recently, enjoying the uh, fruits of COVID. I spent most of my sick time watching reruns of Bullwinkle and uh, drinking Ovaltine. The main character of our book today is convalescing as well. But instead of watching an endless loop of cartoons, he decides to solve one of the oldest, coldest cases in history. The alleged murder of the sons of Edward IV. This book has been called one of the greatest mysteries ever written. Is it? We'll check in with our book critic for the answer today on Book of the Day. Book of the Day back on the air for you, and we are glad to be back. I am joined uh, out of Boston, the Boston area, by Steve Donahue, a book critic who reads a lot and writes about a lot about books and has been known to have a bone to pick with books. <laughs> From time to time. Yes, From time indeed. to time, absolutely. Just nice to see you today. Those times? <laughs> <laughs> I am curious. I am understandably curious. Uh, my research on this book today, which uh, I really was unaware of, and um, after I'm done noodling around the internet, I want it on my TBR pile. <laughs> It's going to seem strange to a lot of readers who do know this book that I would have any bone to pick with it. It is absolutely beloved. It, we're talking today about The Daughter of Time, a novel by the novelist, the mystery novelist, Josephine Tay, that came out in 1951 and has been a bestseller ever since. Her final outing. It it sparked an interest that none of her other books could even approach, that no, I would argue, other mystery novel, aside from maybe The Hound of the Baskervilles, can approach. And yet, or maybe because it's so unconventional, it's so completely unconventional. As my esteemed producer mentioned, this is a historical murder mystery in which a, a present day character, Detective Alan Grant of Scotland Yard, has broken his leg and is laid up in the hospital. So he has nothing to do except read. And he figures out after a while, he thinks people brought him pictures to liven up his hospital room. And one of those pictures is a portrait of Richard III, the, you know, the villain of Shakespeare. Yeah. Uh, and he thinks, you know, that doesn't, he doesn't look like a bad guy. Uh, and then starts to do amateur reading in his hotel, in his hospital room to figure out why we hate Richard III, whether or not he was guilty of killing his nephews, the so-called princes in the tower, in order to gain the throne. And in most murder mysteries that where a present day character investigates the past in order to unravel a, a mystery in the past, there's something parallel happening in the present, right? right? Dan Brown is a perfect example. There are plenty of others, though. Sure, sure. And that's a dictum of publishers who say, look, this is all interesting, but you got to give me something in the real world. There's got to be something at stake here. Right. That never happens in The Daughter of Time. Alan Grant is in his hospital bed the whole time. Right, right. There is no contemporary crime at all. No. He is merely investigating the past. And yet readers loved it. They do. absolutely yeah. loved it. I think they loved it because he gradually comes to the realization that it's all bunkum. <laughs> that all the villainous <laughs> stuff about Richard III that you've been spoon-fed is all Tudor propaganda. And that Richard III was actually a wonderful guy. Hmm. nothing wrong at all <laughs> interesting uh conclusions um i love the Both fact that cotton <laughs> see how it pays <laughs> <up for. laughs> it's interesting because 
I love the fact that he begins this case from what I've just the uh, descriptions I've read. He's driven to this case because he just looks like a good guy. Yeah, he looks like a good guy because uh, 1951 was too early for Alan Grant to have ever seen a photograph of Bill Clinton. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> I don't think we fall for that anymore. <laughs> but once upon a time, I guess they made them simpler at Scotland Yard. Right? Sure. The, the date we have to concern ourselves with is not 1951 when this book came out. It's 1483. In April of 1483, King Edward IV died. Mm -hmm. He was ruler of England. He was as healthy as an oak tree. When suddenly he wasn't feeling all that good. <laughs> and three weeks later, he was dead. Someone slip a Tide Pod in, Tide Pod in his chicken? <laughs> Who could possibly suggest such a thing? No one's suggesting that. Not Certainly once you've read The Daughter of Time, you couldn't imagine such a thing. Now, his younger brother, Richard, was holding down the north of England. He was an almost independent monarch of his own, a, a vicious warlord whose men hunted pregnant Scottish women for sport like they would stags in the field. And Richard hurried back to London when he got news about his brother's death. Oh, wait, no, that's not true. Richard hurried back to London the week before his brother died, almost like he got advance word, but something was wrong with his brother. <laughs> But well, Steve, but Steve, his face, his his, know, his, face. his constant <laughs> countenance. Somebody probably told him that his brother was feeling poorly, and rather than thinking bad chicken, he thought I'd better hurry back. I'd better cross hundreds of miles to get back to London. Of course, he was going back to London purely to safeguard the interests. I'm sure of Edward's twelve-year-old heir, young Edward. Edward the Fourth had two heirs: Edward, the young Edward, who would be Edward the Fifth and his brother Richard, who was nine. So mm -hmm. we're not talking babies here. Edward V, the, the, the heir apparent, the new king, sure. well, Plantagenet boys went to war at 16. So ah, right. he, <laughs> he, wasn't, he wasn't a baby. He needed a regency council. And clearly, Richard, the undisputed warlord of the North, was hurrying back to London in order to meekly serve on a regency council, <laughs> after which in a few years of drawing a salary and having nothing much to do, his brother, his brother's little kid would start to order him around. Well, of course he would do that. Well, who wouldn't do that? It certainly tracks with his character thus far, what I've heard. <laughs> right. So Edward IV dies in April. Uh the boy's mother hurries to the Westminster Abbey and begs for sanctuary. For some reason, she was terrified. <laughs> Maybe she was worried about catching the same kind of bad chicken that Edward caught. Uh, the boys were taken to the Tower of London for their own protection. And they were never seen alive again. And on the 6th of July, Richard was crowned king. Little bit of detail in between there. In between April, when he got back to London, and July, when he had himself crowned king, right in between there, he also uh, dug up a priest to say that the boys were illegitimate. Oh. So they weren't in the line of succession at all. And if they're not in the line of succession, well, yeah. It's the last thing I was expecting, but I guess I'm going to be king. <laughs> and if you're having trouble swallowing all this, well, join the club. Yeah. And yet... A whole generation of historians went into the field because they read The Daughter of Time saying this guy never had any such thought in his mind at all. It was all Tudor propaganda. Alan Grant in his hospital room even says, you know, the, something about the way this portrait looks, I bet he wasn't even deformed. Yeah. I bet the Tudors made that up. <laughs> oh, what's that? Oh, 
uh, my producer, I'm getting word that Richard's skeleton was dug up. And he, was, <laughs> he was, as the kids say, as deformed AF. <laughs> oh, dear. That wasn't Tudor propaganda. Uh, uh, other apologists for Richard have said, well, the boys were fine and they eventually retired into a, a quiet life. They didn't want the hurly-burly of being young and on the throne. They figured, let Uncle Richard take care of it. Their bodies were found. The skeletons were found in the Tower of London. So oh. they didn't. They didn't <laughs> and so on and so forth down the line. Until you reach the conclusion that everybody in the world except Josephine Tay and Alan Grant reaches. Which is that Richard killed his brother, then killed his nephews so that he could be king. <laughs> you can to suggest such a thing. <laughs> I know. <laughs> well, we have to unpack this a little bit. So first off. I have never understood why this is a mystery at all. Never. <laughs> I have never. I have had people who were willing to go 10 rounds with me over wine and calzones about how Richard was innocent. Having come this close to the crown of the kingdom of England. He was innocent when those same people earlier that day zipped into a handicapped parking spot. <laughs> so that day they had firsthand demonstration of how weak the human will is, how weak the human resolve is. So the parking spot's two clots, two, it's two steps closer to the doorway of Walmart. And young 12 year old Edward V was one heartbeat away from the throne of England. <laughs> but but you zipped into that spot, but Richard, oh no. <laughs> oh, no, 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 no. Well, first off, I would pay good money to watch a 10-rounder with wine and calzones because that would just be cheese and sauce and red everywhere. So that's great. Number two, I think the popularity of this book uh, dials into the bizarre um, need and... and uh, fandom that has grown around the cold case mystery that's happened in, i think in the last maybe 10 years mm -hmm. and obviously this book was popular before that but this seems to be one of the first examples of a cold case mystery where you don't have to do a lot of you know current legwork you, you just that's, yeah that's one of know, the essential appeals of the book is that there's no legwork at right. all literally Alan Grant's not capable of legwork right, his right. Legs is broken, so he can't do anything <laughs> so you just disappear into a place that is close to our hearts a library <laughs> and another well he he has to send an emissary to get books and i hate to say it but the emissary buys the books Oh, jeez. <laughs> One of those. Right the from the, we're given the location of the hospital. He's right around the corner from a great library, but he does a lot of buying. There's a lot of book buying involved. Fine. Uh, but another, <laughs> another key attraction of this book, I think, is that it made tens of thousands, millions of people realize how exciting reading history can be. Mm -hmm. If you go into it without taking anything as holy writ, and you examine, all right, I'm reading this statement in this book. How does the author know that? I'm not saying the author's wrong. I'm not a conspiracy theorist. I'm saying, how do you know that? Yeah. Why do you say that? How do you know that that statement is true? Mm. You weren't there. You were centuries away from anyone who was there. So you're relying on written documents. What are you relying on? That started a whole, a whole generation yeah. of people suddenly thought, whether I come down on Richard's side or not, I had no idea. Yeah, that history could be interesting. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, and that is absolutely yeah. true. I want to yeah. stress that for our <laughs> listeners. That is absolutely true. Yeah, that every conclusion that Alan Grant comes to is completely wrong, but that is completely true. Reading yeah. history 
is incredibly fascinating. Once you realize yeah. that you're an active participant instead of a kid in right. school. It's right. Incredible. Absolutely. Like you mentioned, uh, you know, obviously drawing a line between uh, Miss Tay and uh, Dan Brown is not that uh, tough a thread to, uh, you know, to connect. Right. So, the and that popularity thing, was, you know, you don't want to sacrifice your common sense. <laughs> One that, shouldn't know. <laughs> your common sense should be your guiding light. Yeah. I guess maybe I shouldn't assume a large amount of common sense in 23rd and 21st century America, but <laughs> your common sense should be your guiding light. Yeah. If you faced a temptation at 1130 this morning to zip into a handicap spot because there's nobody in the parking lot and it's really close and the ground's kind of icy and who's to be hurt? If you couldn't resist that 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 temptation at 11 this morning, it's extremely unlikely that Richard resisted the temptation <laughs> to kill his nephews for the crown of England. Famously a man of great restraint. <laughs> so, Legendary for his bloodthirstiness in the North. Legendary. Interesting. But and everyone in London at the time, according to the two eyewitnesses that we have, everyone in London just assumed that he had killed the boys in, in the tower. <laughs> well, <laughs> there's no mention made among contemporary sources of his older brothers, the king's death. Nobody mentions anything like that. Yeah. I do, but nobody <laughs> else. So dramatic license has been taken on today's book of the day, perhaps. Edward the Fourth in April of 1483 was a hell of a lot healthier than you are right now. <laughs> Staggering. Well <laughs> And yet in in three weeks, if if our uh our viewers' number one request were to be granted and you were to die. <laughs> I would be the number one suspect. No one would assume that was natural causes. <laughs> so, I was wondering why you sent me that random key to the tower this week. I wasn't sure. <laughs> well, I uh, instead of going to lunch today, I'm going to protect the boys here. Uh, watch the chicken. <laughs> chicken. <laughs> and that's our theme of the day. Fantastic. <laughs> Thank you as always, Steve. Very entertaining. As always, Book of the Day is brought to you Monday through Friday as a service of CPL Radio made possible by the friends of the Cedarburg Public Library in Cedarburg, Wisconsin. He's Steve Donahue, the troublemaker. I'm None Jeff of the Mesh. friends of the library were involved. Let's they were not. They're lovely. <laughs> they were not involved. Their hands are clean. <laughs> not. Absolutely not. We, uh, we love them. And we will see you back here tomorrow. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye, everybody. Bye-bye, everybody.